We're not promised another year, uh, but we are promised that our King reigns. Right? And that's just a glorious promise that, that, that we have in Christ. And so uh, before we read our, this reading response here this morning and before the sermon, um, take great joy in the next seven months, uh, beyond that as well. But as Cody delivers this series in the book of Hebrews, um, I ask you give him the grace, give him the love, uh, be praying for him as you have for me over the past three years, um, and enjoy, enjoy the, the Word of God as he articulates it, and he has put in so much labor and time into studying this book to deliver it to each and every one of us, and, and just take great joy in that, and, and that the Lord has blessed us with this next coming seven months. And so, uh, read with me. I'll read the first uh, half of this short verse, but glorious verse, and then join with me. So, Romans 11.36 says, for, for, I'm sorry, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Gracious Father, we thank You so much uh, for another year. We thank You so much for the blessings in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that this morning that you give us all ears to hear, that your spirit guides us and illuminates the truth of this beautiful word that you have left us with. Father, we know that it does not return void and that your spirit presses it upon our hearts and that we just glory, that we glory today and each and every day that you give us in the promises of Christ. Father, I pray that you give Cody the words to speak. May it be your words and not his. Father, bless his labors. Bless the time that he has been in your word. Use him as a vessel. Let us not look to him. Let us look to the word. Let us look to you. May each and every word that he speaks uh, brings our eyes to your son, Jesus, and him alone. And we pray this in his precious and glorious name. Amen. Good morning. If you guys want to open up your copy of God's word to the book of Hebrews. It truly is a great joy to begin in this book. Um, man, if, if, if there was one book that I had to choose, this is my favorite book, it would be the book of Hebrews. Um, it's actually, by many, um, said to be one of the hardest books in the Bible, right behind, you can guess it, Revelation. And I think the reason for that is that both of these books have a huge historical background. Both Revelation and Hebrews both quote a ton of Old Testament scripture. And if we don't understand the Old Testament, it is practically impossible to understand the depth of these books. So we begin in the book of Hebrews. And the goal is then to understand the Old Testament. To understand what the meaning of the Old Testament is. And then how we find the fulfillment in Christ and in Christ alone. And so just like Revelation, the other harder book, what this book does is it holds up Christ in all of his glory. And it tells us to marvel at him. It holds him up as our great high priest and tells us to, to marvel at him. So what I want to do this morning as we began in the book of Hebrews is just bring us back. Bring us back to that time when the recipients of this letter would have received this word from God. So that we can understand this book as they would have understand it, understood it. So the year is 73 A.D. 
40 years since the death of Jesus Christ. You weren't old enough at that time to remember what that was like, but you heard the stories. The the Pharisees hated the stories, especially the ones of Christ's resurrection. But your grandfather found no greater joy than to tell you of that precious Christ. His face gleamed as he spoke about that blood that flowed from the tree. And every time at supper when the wine was poured, he'd like whisper, the blood, the blood of the covenant. Of course, Grandpa had since passed away, but his consistency in telling you about the Messiah is something you would never forget. The blood of that Passover lamb is your only hope. That's what every Christian confessed, but they didn't always live like it. So now as you sit in a little town called Pella, just across the Jordan River from Jerusalem, you ponder about what your life had been like just ten years earlier. The days were bloody, not because people were getting hurt, but because of the amount of sacrifices being sacrificed. The amount of blood of bulls and goats flowing. Sin was on the conscience of men, and sacrifices were the only way they could conceive to take care of that. Grandpa had always said, you don't have to do that anymore. The blood of Jesus washes away all sin. But he was persecuted for that. He suffered for saying that. And now, just like the other Christians, a lot of you just found it easier to just participate. You knew it didn't mean anything. But some of your brothers thought it did. Some of your brothers would not find rest until they had gone up to the temple and made that sacrifice. They thought it still meant something. There was division in the Hebrew church. And many were struggling on their true standing with Christ. And it was even a struggle for you at times. So many people were so madly devoted to offering up these sacrifices. They said you had to do it in order to please the Lord. They said that's what Moses and the prophets had taught. You knew you would never compromise that Christ is the Messiah. You believed that and held to it strongly. But you had watched many of your elders be imprisoned and even beaten for following the way. And you wanted to stay out of as much conflict as possible. But as you look back on how foolish that thinking was, you realize that such a mindset was short-lived. In 64 AD, a sermon would be preached that would forever change your thinking. And that sermon was substantiated by a war that brought you to where you're at right now, Pella. The sermon told of how great the Son of God is, how perfect His sacrifice is, how eternal His priesthood is. He told you that Jesus is way greater than Moses. That that his redemption way more secure than that promised land. He begged you never again to return to those sacrifices. He, He taught you about the surety of God's promise that he would keep you in his favor completely, independently from your sacrifices. And what joy filled your heart as he told you that you can draw boldly to the throne of grace by the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. And now as you sit in Pella, you realize how deeply God's truth affected your life. It was this sermon, this truth about Christ, that gave you the strength for what was about to come. The same year, news began to spread of a great martyrdom in Rome. A fire had burned, and Nero blamed the Christians. 
And, and now you, you tremble in fear as you hear that your brothers and sisters are being fed to lions simply for professing Christ. But you're reminded of that sermon you heard where you were encouraged to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. Not a year later, the beloved St. Paul was martyred. The church had lost one of her strongest voices, but again, you're reminded that Christ sits at the right hand of God and ever lives to make intercession for his people, and he can make you strong out of weakness. At this point, the entire church was in a buzz. Everybody knew Christ's prophecy that this generation would see the destruction of the temple. Everybody knew what Christ had commanded them to do when the times of such a time came. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Jesus said, then know that his desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. This sermon, that sermon about the sufficiency of Christ shaped you during that time because your faith was being put under trial. And if you didn't listen to the words of Christ, you would be in that city when it was destroyed in 70 AD. If you ignored the sermon you just heard and went back up on the Day of Atonement to make a sacrifice in 70 AD, then your blood would have flowed right alongside the goats. Somehow, then, a smile comes across your face as you think about that word of exhortation that was given to you in Jerusalem. How he solemnly warns you to get off the milk, to leave the simple doctrines and hold fast to maturity found in Christ. The truth about Christ is exactly, exactly what brought you to where you are right now. Because you ran for the mountains when Jerusalem was surrounded by armies. You forsook sacrifices and clung to Christ as your only hope, and he gave you the strength to leave everything you had ever known. Because he is your great high priest, and he understands the weakness you felt as you struggled. And that brings us to our passage today. Everything I just said in a more notable form, the letter was probably written around 64 A.D., to a Jewish church that was near to a temple, they would have seen the sacrifices. They would be held the sacrifices happening by them all the time. They would have been tempted. This church, this Christian church, would have been tempted to go back to sacrifices. We're unsure of the author. Many believe it to be Paul. Um, it reads like a sermon up until the last couple chapters. The, the arguments for Paul were held by many in the early church. However, the, the, the style is Pauline, but the, the wording isn't necessarily. So a lot of people believe that it was said by Paul or spoken by Paul and then penned by perhaps Luke. Um, the, the early church fathers, I think I believe Origen, held a, sim, a view like this and, and Clement as well. Um, for those of you in church history right now, those, they both held a similar view to writ, or said by Paul, written down by somebody else. Um, those are some of the earliest testimonies we have regarding the authorship of this epistle. The, those who received this letter, they were, they were struggling to understand how sufficient Christ is and were influenced by their culture to forsake Christ for sacrifices. The, the cultural influence was even forceful. At times, however, what we do read in Hebrews is that they had not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So while we do, while we read that there are generations before them 
were, were being persecuted strongly for the faith. This generation was being persecuted that received Hebrews, um, but not to the point of shedding blood. They were not being martyred. Um, but there was still a, a huge cultural influence and a, and a push for them to, to cling to these sacrifices, to go back to their old way of living. And so to, to understand, to come from a life, a Jewish life, of making sacrifices all the time in order to, to think you're appeasing God or making yourself right with God by offering up this, this blood of the bull or a goat and then to be told complete sufficiency is found from something completely outside of you that you can never do, this was hard for the Jewish Christians. That was a big change. They were on constant pressure from themselves, from their own flesh, as well as from others surrounding them that were not Christians to return to sacrifices. And so understanding this history about this book helps us to understand how it relates to us. Because we don't know the author, Dr. Robert Paul Martin asks, how then? How then should we approach our study of this letter? The answer is, with our hearts attuned to its spirit. The spirit has sent us a word of exhortation. We should receive it as such, a personal word from God. He continues, in its broadest application, Hebrews addresses the issue of where salvation is found. And the question that it puts to the modern man or woman still is, will you follow after Christ as he is offered in the scriptures, as the only way by which you may be saved from your sins, or will you turn away from him and return to the powerless religion revived by your forefathers? The author will exhort us to continue in the faith by encouraging us in the complete and total sufficiency of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. He will glorify Christ as the great prophet, priest, and king, toward which every Old Testament saint looked and pointed. Hebrews will speak about the sufficiency of the new covenant as opposed to the constant failure of the old covenant. To this point, Delitzsch calls this book an Easter morning breath from another world as setting forth the special glories of the new covenant and of a new and Christ-transfigured world. What the author of Hebrews does is he says, look what you have. Look how glorious life is in Christ. Why would you ever go back? Why would you ever go back? So this book is a breath of new life for the struggling Christian. It's hope in the darkest of times. And as we, together as a congregation, behold our Christ... In his glory, I pray we'll better rest in the completion of his work. As we see in Hebrews the object of our faith, we'll then be encouraged toward outworkings of faith, toward looking toward this great promise. So let's begin by reading the first three verses of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father. What a joy it is to begin this journey through, through a book that you have given us, through words you have given us that proclaim to us 
how insufficient we are and how sufficient Christ is. Would you help us, Lord, to see the reality of this and to look to Christ in everything? To look to Christ for our everything. To boldly say that our worth is not in what we own, but it's in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you're taking notes, two points, two points I want to hit on in these first couple of verses. And what these first three verses do is they form basically a summary of the entire book of Hebrews. So it's going to feel super fast paced as we go through these first three verses today. And then it's all going to flesh out over the next 27 weeks. Um, so, so two points. The son's revelation is final and complete. Point one. The son's revelation is final and complete. Point two. Here's why the son's revelation is final and complete. Here's why the son's revelation is final and complete. So point one. As we've already stated, we're dealing with the Jewish culture. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the author will magnify ways that God has worked in the past with Israelites in order to then say, Christ is better. Christ is better. He'll, he'll, cry, he'll set Christ above the past ways in which, Christ, in which God has worked in order to show us how much more glorious Christ is. Later on in the book of Hebrews, we'll read of Moses. And Moses will be held up as the giver of the law, as the one who led the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt. And then we'll be told, but guess who leads you out of a much deeper slavery into a much greater promised land? Christ. So the author of Hebrews will constantly point us back to Christ as greater than anything we've ever seen in the Old Testament. And that's exactly what he begins to do here. The prophets spoke the word of God. They spoke the word strongly. They encouraged the people of God and condemned his enemies. God revealed his will to Israel in all sorts of ways throughout the timeline of history. He used visions, dreams, riddles, proverbs. He even spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. And yet none of this was conclusive. None of this was conclusive. None of these ways of speaking ever showed anybody the radiance of the glory of God. None of these prophets could ever effectively and totally purify you and me from sin. None of these messengers ever sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But that, says the author, was long ago. That was long ago. In fact, by this point in history, the Jews believed the canon was complete. No one dared add to the scriptures. The LSB probably translates the sentence best when it says, God having spoken long ago to the fathers. The thought being captured is that the speaking of God by these prophets ended in the past. It's done. Yet all of these prophecies ended in anticipation and never in fulfillment. They concluded with the thought of redemption, but never actually gave redemption. The old covenant was unsuccessful for salvation. Which is why the author introduces us in verse 2 to something, or rather, someone who is much greater. And so God, having spoken long ago to the fathers in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. 
Here we find the fulfillment of what all the prophets spoke of. Our phrase here, these last days, is not unfamiliar to the recipients of this letter. Throughout the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets spoke multiple times of the latter days, a time in which amazing things would happen. When when Jacob calls his sons to himself in Genesis 49 to bless them, he says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what will happen in the days to come. When he speaks to Judah, the tribe from which Christ came, he says that his brothers will praise him, that his hand will be on the neck of his enemies. Furthermore, the scepter shall not depart from him, meaning that he will rule as king. This rule, says the blessing, will come to pass through the obedience of the peoples. Or sorry, not through the obedience. This will bring to pass, rather, the obedience of the peoples. Can't get that wrong. All of this happens, of course, in the last days. Another great prophecy regarding the last days is Deuteronomy 4.30-31, where Israel is promised, based on the surety of God's covenant with their fathers, that he will bring them to himself, and they will obey his voice. Isaiah 2 speaks of the last days being a time when nations come to learn the ways of God, peace is brought through the earth, and everybody beats their swords into gardening tools. These are the last days. In other words, when the author of Hebrews speaks of the last days, the hearers immediately understand this to be a time when the Messiah would come and bring those who have been exiled back into communion with their God. A millennium of prosperity and abundance for the people of God's chosen nation, brought to pass by a king on David's throne. These last days would consummate with the righteous shining forth as a bright star in the night sky. What does the author say happened in the last days? God spoke in his son. Interestingly enough, there is not a definite article here. The text says God spoke in son. To to clarify, God speaking in the last days is, is revelatory in respect to its nature. No longer is God speaking, proclaiming himself. God becomes man and dwells among us. And the revelation here is us beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. No longer are we just being told of the glory of God. We're seeing him walk among us. God's revelation in Jesus Christ is final and complete. Thus we see the new covenant revealed, where greater access to God is brought to pass by God taking upon himself human flesh, Christ submitting himself to our weaknesses and showing us the glory of God in himself. The old covenant where, where, where access to God was restricted by your obedience is completely gone. No longer do you have to work your way to God through obedience and sacrifice. God has come to you. This becomes the basis for the entire epistle of Hebrews. If we don't believe this foundation, then everything else falls apart. The Son's authority in speaking is assumed as we begin our journey through this book. God has spoken in His Son. You don't need anything else to draw near to God. His word is near to you. You don't need to reach up and grab it, and you don't need to dig down to find it. God has come to us. 
If we're to find the sufficiency that is here proclaimed in our Savior, we must believe that his word is final and complete. We don't need to add anything to what he has said. We are simply commanded to believe what he has been spoken. All the prophets that spoke in times past paved the way for this revelation. All that we ever need to draw near to God is found in the Son, and nobody can take that from you. Not a pope, not a church, not a doctrine, not a teacher, not a confession, not even an angel can add anything to the proclamation that we have received in Jesus Christ. So point two, why is this revelation so authoritative? Why is it so complete and so final? The author gives us seven reasons, which we're going to try to go through. Seven reasons, seven reasons why the, the son, the son's revelation is so complete and so final. The, the words of the prophets were authoritative in that God spoke in them. Christ is authoritative because he is the appointed heir of all things. The world was created through him. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's why Christ is authoritative. It's as if the author is holding up that great command of God. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And he's showing us the son in all his glory and saying, won't you listen to him? Why? Why should we listen to him? Because he, and only he, has been appointed the heir of all things. There was a promise given to Abraham that his offspring would inherit the gates of his enemies. Israel was commanded to obey God in order that they may live in that promise. As we will see when we get deeper into chapter 2 of Hebrews, only the Son, only the Son has lived in no perfect obedience to the Father. Two Adams. The first disobeyed and fell into sin. The second, through perfect obedience, brought life to the many. He obeyed the Father perfectly. And he was given dominion over everything. There's not a leaf that is outside of his authority. He rules over the just and the unjust the living and the dead, the skies and the seas, the Father has given him authority over everything. And this, says John Owen, is the spring of the church's glory, comfort, and assurance. It is our head, husband, and elder brother who is gloriously vested with all of this power. Our nearest relation, our best friend, is thus exalted, not to a place of honor and trust under others, a thing that contents the airy fancy of per earthworms, nor yet to a kingdom of the earth, a matter that swells some, and even breaks them with pride. No, nor yet to an empire over this perishing world, but to an abiding and everlasting rule and dominion over the whole creation of God. His word has authority. And for the Jews that are hearing this, they're reading of the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. This is the king of the Jews. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. He who appears in the last days to establish peace and security for Israel. All of those prophets who spoke in incompleteness, who looked forward to that bright light they saw shining as they sat under the darkness of the faulty old covenant, this is that bright 
light. He is the son who is filled with power on on high to fight for Israel and to fulfill the promise made to Abraham. We are beholding the son to whom God said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So we see the son who not only inherits things, but inherits a people. And this, says Calvin, in the words of him, in being made man and putting on the same nature as us, he took on himself this airship in order to restore what he had lost, what we had lost in Adam. If we are to receive anything, it must be received through Christ, since he is Lord of everything. Hebrews will later establish the difference between the two Adams in greater detail. will be shown that Christ fulfills the dominion mandate in Genesis. Now, the, the dominion mandate in Genesis 1 is carried forward in promise to Abraham. Abraham never sees the fulfillment of this promise, and neither do his descendants for many years. Israel, who is called God's firstborn, are told that they will find the fulfillment provided they obey, which they fail to do in totality. What we find in Hebrews is that Christ is the firstborn. He does obey God entirely, and therefore inherits all of the blessings and the promises. He doesn't only receive them for himself, however, He shares his inheritance with those whom he purchases. The message Hebrews proclaims about Christ is of utmost importance. Why? Because the world was created through him. Because the world was created through him. The the world, or even translated the ages, Delitz says the infinite multitude of worlds which have their existence in those unlimited periods of time. Not that we believe in a multiplicity of worlds, but rather everything that exists or could exist is made through the sun. The author began to show us the glory of the sun by by holding him up and showing us that he was appointed by God as heir of everything. He now goes back before time began and says that everything that he was appointed heir of was created through him. In other words, what he has now been appointed heir of through his obedience to the Father has its existence because of him. Therefore, what we will come to find as we progress through Hebrews is not that only does everything we see right now belong to Christ, but ultimately the new heaven and the new earth are his creation, brought into existence by his purchasing of a people by his blood, and the institution of the new covenant from the beginning, from before the beginning, out into eternity and eternity past. The Son has existed. In fact, verse 3 tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God. Remember that prophet Moses who had to wear a veil when he walked out of the tabernacle because his face shone with brightness because he had just been with God? Christ comes unveiled to his creation. In Christ, the veil is gone and we behold the very radiance of God's glory. Isaiah 60 verse 1 prophesies to Israel that the glory of the Lord will rise upon them And as Calvin says, the glory of the Father is invisible, 
until it is beheld in Christ. Why is it so imperative that we look to Christ for everything? Because he is God. He has an absolute and timeless existence. And as Ambrose says, when there is, where there is light, there is radiance. And where there is radiance, there is light. The sufficiency of the sun speaking is derived from the fact that, as Westcott says, Christ is God's crowning revelation. Christ is God's crowning revelation. When we behold Christ, as he shows himself to us, there is nothing more glorious to behold. There is no greater revelation to be given. Malin notes here that the Mosaic law derived its divine authority from the majestic glory of Jehovah, which appeared at the delivery of it. But he goes on. The person by whom God has now spoken is the truth and substance of all the former appearances of the divine majesty. We behold the radiance of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this Christ, as the middle part of verse 3 tells us, is the exact imprint of God's nature. When Christ speaks, then God speaks. There's no difference in essence between them. Christ and the Father are one. None of the prophets could prophesy so clearly concerning God because none of them were God. But Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. In these last days, God has made himself known to us in the the fullest way possible by coming down to us, walking among us, and showing his glory to all who receive him. Our wording here in this passage has caused a lot of debate in church history. It's very specific. Very specific. Christ is the exact imprint of his nature, and that comes from two specific words. The first one is character. Literally, the Greek word is character, which we translate exact imprint. At its root, the word is speaking of an engraving or a stamp. And so you take a stamp and you stamp it on something, the same, right? It looks the same. But, but it's not just the exact imprint of the, some form or substance. What we're speaking of is the, the character of God's upostasis, his, his, his essence is the, is the term there. So when, in our confession, in our 1689 confession, when it speaks of the Trinity, we speak of God in three persons or three hypostases. There's three, um, yeah, three persons. And that's where this word comes from. Um, Christ is the exact imprint of the Father's essence. This is the Trinity, right? There's, there's no difference in essence between them. They're two persons, but one essence. And so when we behold Christ then, we behold the Father. To make this a little more simple, I'll try. This verse speaks to the fact that Christ is a distinct person of the same essence with the Father. In that way, in Christ we see the the person of the Father because Christ is one nature with the Father. In reality, what it comes down to is no one can be the exact imprint of God's nature unless he is God. And so, Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. God came down and walked among us. But here's the problem that we still face. With all of this, with beholding the glory of Christ in this passage, we face this huge problem. We still have not seen a way that we ascend to him. 
We still do not have a way in which we go to the Father. What the book of Hebrews is going to do is it's going to contrast two covenants. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. We're going to see the difference between the covenant made with Israel that relied upon their obedience to receive blessing and the covenant made with Christ and his heirs which relies on Christ's obedience for us to receive blessing and promise and eternal life. Through Christ then, we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. These first couple verses of Hebrews, they, they form this introduction to everything that the writer is going to say later on. So if this felt like we've just been like slamming through stuff so far, we have, but it's all going to be fleshed out, okay? Um, we have, we've got 27 weeks to do this. It should, should work out. Um, so, so in verse 3 here then, the author begins to speak toward the mediatorial work of Christ. So far we've seen Christ's deity as the reason we should listen to him. But now the author speaks of, of, of his mediation. Um, his actions, basically. What, what he does. Dr. Martin here says that Christ's work is connected intrinsically to his divine identity. So we're told that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. As I said before, we're speaking of two covenants that are radically different, but we're beholding the same God who spoke of both of them into existence. So, so when we go through Hebrews, we're going to see a lot of differences between the two covenants. That's Baptistic theology. We'll get a lot into that. But there is continuity between the covenants because God spoke both of them into existence. And so while we establish a clear difference and we don't baptize our babies, we do see a, a, a connecting part of God's promise throughout all of history. But that's for another day. Um, here, what we see is, is that God has, from before the foundation of the world, in his divine providence, foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That means that the fall of creation into groaning and the pains of sin is not outside of his purpose. Yet, as creation fought against God in his providence... Christ comes in his mediation and upholds the fallen world by the word of his power. And so, from the beginning of the world, Christ has upheld us. Not just me individually, but the entirety of existence has been according to his foreknowledge and plan. Christ has mediated between creation and creator since creation existed. The world has not spun out into chaos. It is held together by Christ's sovereign word. Our sun won't come crashing into this world tomorrow. Christ holds it. The manner in which he does this is a lot in an entire sermon in itself, but there's, there's one key thing which is spoken of in this passage today. In terms of Christ's mediation between creation and creator that has existed since the foundation of the world, we read that the world was created through Christ, and here we're told that he is the one who upholds the world. So although this mediation has always existed, it becomes distinct within history at Christ's incarnation. One of the greatest prophecies we have of Christ, which most are familiar with, is Isaiah 9, 6-8. We have this proclamation here that there's a son who's born, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name's going to be Mighty Mighty. Counselor, everlasting, right? And, and in that prophecy, 
we're told that this child, this son, establishes a kingdom that he upholds with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is the Messiah that was promised to the Jews, the one they longed for. What we find in our text today is that Christ generally upholds the universe in its entirety by the word of his power, but then there's a peculiar thing he does. He makes purification for sins. And so whereas ESV kind of separates out this sentence, probably a better reading would be, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and upholding the universe by the word of his power, he made purification for sins. Okay, so his, his upholding the universe by the word of his power is a general upholding of everybody, but then there comes to a specific way in which he mediates for his people, which is that he makes purification for sins, and then he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So now we see a more specific way of his mediatorship. We, he, he, Christ, by himself, purged our sins. Not only does this Christ sustain the universe so that you and I get to live by his grace on this planet, but he sustains you specifically into eternity with himself. For all of those Jews who received this letter and were so worried about constantly making sacrifice to just make sure they were right with God, what a joy these words bring. What a cause for rest. The Christ who upholds everything has taken away all of your sin. You don't need to go back to the temple. You don't need to purify yourself. You don't need to obey the law. You don't need to do anything. Christ has done it all. He has made you pure. It's an aorist, past tense, completed action done by the one who is way greater than you in every sense of the term. Christ has purified you from sin. We're going to spend literally weeks going forward fleshing out the details of how sufficient Christ's sacrifice is in regards to his high priesthood and everything he does. But the fact of the matter here is that it's done. The Holy Spirit has given us this word of exhortation that we may see Christ in a greater light than we ever have before in order that by God's grace we might rest all the more in him who has purified us from sin. The fact that we must listen to Christ's word is assumed in Hebrews. The sufficiency of his once-for-all sacrifice is proved. But until we get to examining all the details of that, would you just stand in awe at the simplicity and robustness of this verse? The the, the word translated having made by ESV is, is in the middle voice. That probably doesn't mean anything, but... Let me explain. It's an aorist middle voice participle, and that means that the action is done in the past by the agent. He himself purged our sins. Christ accomplished the purification by himself, completely apart from anything in you. Your salvation isn't dependent upon you. It's dependent upon the one who you were created through, who is the radiance of God's glory, who is the exact imprint of God's nature, the son who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He has purified you. Don't let the vastness of the universe that Christ upholds ever make you think that his eye is not on the sparrow. That he does not watch over you specifically. 
He purged your sins, Christian. Then what happened? Our God-man ascended to the Father's side to take a seat. Your Savior has gone ahead of you into God's presence. His work is completely accomplished. He has been glorified as our priest-king. And to go back real quick to that prophecy in Isaiah 9, the child that was born established his kingdom by purchasing a people by his blood. That man is sovereign, the sovereign of our days, and he upholds his kingdom with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts has done this. Not me, not you. God in his sovereignty. So dear Christian, you're in a kingdom ruled by a just king who has justified you. There is nothing that can change that fact. So live and dwell in that kingdom of peace where you don't have to worry about making sacrifices to maintain a right standing with God. The sacrifice is made. If you are in Christ, then you have peace with God. So just to repeat now what I said earlier, Christ's word is so much better than the blood of Abel. It is the fulfillment of all revelation because he actually and effectually makes you right with God. Nobody can take that from you. Not a pope, not a church, not the apostle Paul, not a council, not a confession, not me, not an angel can ever separate you from the love of God, can ever add anything to the sacrifice that has been completed by Christ at that cross. To Telestai. It's done. So, will you follow after Christ as he is offered in the scriptures as the only way by which you may be saved from your sins? Or will you turn away from him and return to the powerless religion revived by your forefathers? Let's pray. Oh Christ, we come before you not by our own merit and not by anything we've done, but by the precious, by your precious blood. We thank you that by your sacrifice you allow us to draw boldly to the throne of God as children, as heirs, and as sons and daughters to the kingdom and to our Father. Help us to never forget this fact, but help us to live and dwell in the light of this truth. The work is truly finished. That we cannot add to your sacrifice. That we cannot take away from your sacrifice. Help us to live as Christians. Knowing that we are justified. That there is no one to condemn. Father, we will often fall and stumble. We will often struggle with pain through our pilgrimage here. But help us look to that kingdom that cannot be shaken, where sin is no more. Help us come to you by the blood of Christ when we're in need and not push ourselves away. Father, when we stumble and when we fail and when our sin grieves us so immensely, help us to rejoice all the more in the sacrifice of Christ that purged us of our sins. Help us to rest in the sacrificial work 
of your sovereign son who upholds us by the word of his power. And as we worship here, as we sing praises to your name, oh, that we would truly believe him, that we would truly believe what we're singing as we proclaim the goodness of Jesus, as we take the Lord's Supper and receive the grace you give us, help us to truly believe that that bread and that wine, that fruit of the vine is is what you have given us, which you, Christ, have offered up for our sins. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, as we partake in, in communion this morning in, in remembrance of uh, the sacrifice of Christ, remembrance of, of those promises that, that Cody articulated in, in Christ, uh, Paul calls us in, in Corinthians to examine ourselves. Uh, that, that Greek word for examine there, it's, it's uh, illustrated by a, a metalsmith testing the metal to see the purity of that metal. Uh, so testing ourselves, examining ourselves. And in that examination, we're not examining the purity of ourselves necessarily. It's the, the, we'll quickly find that we're, we are not pure, uh, only through Christ. So we look to the purity in Christ and Christ alone in, in that examination. Uh, is our faith in Christ and Christ alone, or is there some sort of uh, self that is in the way that we look to ourselves for, for the merit of salvation, or do we examine and see that we come up empty in and of ourselves, but it is full and complete in the works of Christ? And so as we partake in communion this morning, just draw your minds to, to the eternal feast that awaits that great promise in the future. And so as we partake, we are partaking in, in one bread and that of Christ and not carnally, but spiritually. And so uh, I just want to paint a picture in your mind of as we partake together, this is a blessing and an ordinance that the Lord has given us to partake in with one another as we partake in Christ uh, as, in, as one body. And so in that eternal feast, just picture yourself having that meal, that, that, that great meal where, where in eternity all uh, sins have been purged. There's no more mourning, no more sadness, just joy as we uh, enjoy our Lord and enjoy each other. And, and, and imagine looking across the table at, at one another with great gladness and great joy as, we have, as Christ has brought us to completion and brought us across that finish line. And we get to just have that great feast with one another, with our Lord. And so let's pray and let's partake this morning in the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great ordinance to remind us of the sufficient sacrifice in your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that you bless the elements, set them aside for, for a holy use, and that we look upon the holiness of your son, Jesus, and we take great joy as we partake in remembrance of what he has done and also remembrance of the great promise that we have in him that he will bring us all to completion and that there will be that great banquet, that great feast in eternity that will be able to enjoy for all of eternity. And we'll pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.